This is episode 13 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to Lucky Episode 13 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we sit down with Mary O'Callaghan, a public policy fellow in the center. We chat about her background and studies in developmental psychology, how being affiliated with Notre Dame and the CEC has helped her work as an advocate for persons with disabilities, and about an upcoming UN panel discussion about World Down Syndrome Day. Let's head into the Marion Short Ethics Library for this week's conversation. I'm sitting here today with Mary O'Callaghan. She earned an undergraduate degree in psychology from Creighton University and received her Ph.D. in developmental psychology from the University of Notre Dame. Her doctoral work was funded by a grant from the National Institutes of Health for the Study of Developmental Disabilities. She and her husband, John, also a fellow of the CEC and a former guest on the program, are the parents of five children, including their youngest, Tommy, who has Down syndrome. Since his birth, Mary has been an advocate at the local level for unborn children with Down syndrome and other disabilities. She has served as a member of the Disabilities Advisory Board for the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend and works in conjunction with the Michiana Down Syndrome Support Group to provide mentoring to local parents who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ken. Glad to be here. Well, tell us a bit about how you came to Notre Dame. Obviously, you came to do your PhD, but uh, what did you focus on in your studies and writing? Um, sure, Ken. So I will try to make my life story <laughs> short. Uh, about 30 years ago, I was taking a year off in between college and graduate school. I knew I wanted to pursue doctoral studies in psychology, but I wasn't exactly sure what direction my work would take. And I was working primarily at a psychiatric hospital on the children's ward. Um, I thought my, my work would go in this direction. And And to make some extra money, I uh, took a job at a group home for adults with developmental disabilities. And I absolutely fell in love with my work there with these individuals. In fact, to this day, I still remember um, all of their names and their faces. And so um, I decided that this might be where my vocation lie, um, in the area of disabilities. And it just so happened, as you mentioned in the introduction, that Notre Dame had a doctoral program in developmental psychology that was funded by the NIH. This was one of the the programs that was funded under the Kennedy administration uh, for the study of developmental disabilities. So this seemed like a perfect fit for me. So I packed up my bags. I was living in Seattle at the time, and I headed east, came to Notre Dame, and started my work there. My work was probably divided sort of into two main areas. I did what might be considered uh, mainstream work in the area of disability. So I wrote about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, with individuals with disabilities. I worked on emotional development in individuals with uh, developmental disabilities. And then my master's work and dissertation work were probably more closely aligned with some of the interests of the faculty members in the Department of Psychology at the time. So Mm -hmm. there was a great interest in environmental factors that could contribute to developmental delay, especially some of the milder developmental delays that we often see. 
And so my master's work was actually uh, done in the NICU here at Memorial Hospital in South Bend. Mm -hmm. I looked at the development of uh, infants with, um, or excuse me, infants who were born prematurely. Um, I was interested in their physiological responses to stress and how this might impact their later development. My doctoral work was actually done as part of a a large uh, study, a large longitudinal study that was being conducted at Notre Dame on the children of adolescent parents. Um, So at the time, uh, psychologists were finding that children of adolescent parents had a number of uh, various developmental delays. So these kids were showing up in Head Start and other preschool programs um, with some significant developmental delays that couldn't be explained simply by poverty, for example. Mm -hmm. And so um, this program was looking at... Uh, the ways in which um, adolescent parents were at risk for some poor parenting practices and how these practices impacted the development of their children. So uh, this was um, these were the sort of areas uh, in which my primary work was focused at the time, and I fully intended on pursuing a full-time academic uh, a career um, in, in some aspect of disabilities. But uh, as you know, life often <laughs> gets in the way of our best plans. I met my husband, John, uh, here. It's always. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> I blame him for just about everything. But <laughs> no, um, I uh, met my husband, John, here in graduate school. Actually, we met in the library at Notre Dame. Uh, we got married and started our family. I actually had two children and was seven months pregnant with my third when I defended my doctoral dissertation. So at that point, I decided that I would cut back a little bit from full-time academics. I decided to uh, pursue some part-time work so I could primarily be at home with my children. Um, Again, as you mentioned in your your, uh, introduction, we, we went on to have five children total. Um, And so I worked part-time for a while while the children were small, and I probably was away from the field of disabilities for about 10 years uh, total. Now, the O'Callaghan family is deeply embedded in the Center for Ethics and Culture. Not only are you uh, one of our public policy fellows, Mm -hmm. your husband John is the director of the Jacques Maritain Center and a senior advisor here at the center. Um, Your daughter Catherine, your second child, was a student worker with us and a Soren fellow, one of the very first Soren fellows. And now Caroline is one of our Mm -hmm. Soren fellows and and is is working with us as a student uh, Mm -hmm. student employee as well. So. How did you, Mary O'Callaghan, get involved <laughs> with the Center for Ethics and Culture? Well, Ken, this is where I think the story gets interesting. So as I said, I sort of took a break from the field of disability. But as uh, God's providence would have it, he brought me back into the field of disability about 10 years ago in a way that I never could have expected or anticipated. Um, as you mentioned, our youngest son, Tommy, has Down syndrome. He was born about 10 years ago. And when he was born, he had a number of medical problems. And so his first year, we spent pretty much just trying to help him um, uh, be medically stable. And so that was our first concern, what uh, were his medical issues. Um, But after that, the most difficult part of his diagnosis for me personally was um, coming to understand how little value society places on the lives of children like my son, right? Mm -hmm. So even though I knew we talked about, you know, I I had worked in in the area of disability, I knew we talked about uh, disability rights and full inclusion. On the other hand, I also knew that upon receiving a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome, anywhere between about 70 and 90 percent of parents in this country would choose to abort their child with Down syndrome. So I knew that uh, 
that his life was really not right unvalued um, by a large part of society. Um, and I was deeply saddened, not just for him, but also just for the tremendous loss of life right that was occurring um, in, in children with Down syndrome and other disabilities. And um, so, you know, as a mother, I was horrified. As an academic, I was interested in how we could have allowed this to happen, right? And I wanted to know how we could prevent it or what we could do to kind of intervene. And so I just started doing research on my own. I started talking about this issue to anyone who would listen. I had a good friend who was the president of our local Down syndrome group at the time. She was very pro-life. Sadly, she passed away from cancer a few years ago. But she encouraged me to, um, given my background, to start working in this area. And so I started giving some talks just locally to groups who would listen. For example, the Women's Care Center was interested in this topic. And uh, then David Solomon, who you know was the founder and previous director of the Center for Ethics and Culture, very graciously invited me to speak at some center events. Uh, I think the first event I spoke at was a Bread of Life dinner. Sure. Um, you're familiar with those, obviously. Um, I spoke at one of, I think, one of the first VITA conferences um, when the VITA was still in its infancy. I spoke at, I think, one of the medical ethics conferences that uh, uh, used to be held by the center um, and a variety of other events. When uh, Carter Sneed took over as director of the Center for Ethics and Culture, I continued my work, and Carter also very kindly offered me a position as a public policy fellow. Um, And this has been a huge gift because, as you can imagine, it has given me a platform from which to speak. Um, It has given me an institutional affiliation, which, as you know, is hugely important um, in terms of um, being able to speak credibly, right, Um, um, in the public square and in academic settings. Um, And so I've continued my work um, under Carter. And this has been um, this uh, the public policy fellowship um, has been, um, again, very, very helpful for my work. It has allowed me to do things like uh, testify, right, um, in the state house in Indianapolis when there was legislation up for debate about um, uh, banning um, abortion in the case of a poor prenatal diagnosis. Um, It's allowed me to work with the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops. I've been able to develop some materials for them on disability, um, right, for their their pro-life secretariat. Um, And I've also been able to travel. I've been able to travel all over the country to give talks on uh, uh, prenatal diagnosis and abortion, and also um, I've done some international talks. So um, I'm incredibly grateful uh, to the center for allowing um, me to to do this work and, and to allow my work to have a great impact, certainly. Well, and a few years ago, we had the, during the Year of Mercy, the center sponsored this this conference on disability and mercy, uh, kind of our own contribution Mm -hmm. to that, to the Year of Mercy uh, that Pope Francis uh, convoked. And I know you, both you and John presented at the conference. And as you know, that was an incredible event. We um, had scholars from all over the United States, and we also partnered with some disability groups, you know, some Mm -hmm. local disability groups in Italy, um, uh, L'Arche and the San Aguilio community. So it was an incredible opportunity to not only um, have 
have sort of an academic conference, but also to build community with others who are interested in promoting the dignity of those with disabilities. And as you know, it provided my son and I a wonderful opportunity uh, to meet Pope Francis. Uh, there was a mass for persons with disabilities as part of, in conjunction uh, with the, um, the disability event being held in the Year of Mercy, and we were able to attend that mass and then meet uh, Pope Francis briefly afterwards. So that was, as you know, a huge highlight oh, yes. um, of the Year of Mercy for our family. I know it's one of our favorite photos on the wall here <laughs> in the center is, is you and, and Tommy right. and, well, and Pope Francis. You know my son uh, fairly well. You know, he's very shy and doesn't take to strangers well and he um, was so happy to meet Pope Francis when Pope Francis came out um uh, emerged, you know, onto the altar. Uh, he said, "Wow, Mama! Wow!" <laughs> he knew this was somebody special, so he yeah. he gave Pope Francis a hug and was very excited by the whole thing. So that was wonderful. We'll be sure to share that photo as part of this <laughs> part of the podcast episode. But uh, so upcoming, you actually have an opportunity to speak again as a public policy fellow of the center uh, on March twentieth. You're going to participate in a panel discussion hosted by by the Holy See's permanent mission to the United <laughs> Nations. Uh, the the panel discussion is entitled No Room in Rural Villages, Cities, and Homes for Those with Disabilities. Are Girls and Boys with Down Syndrome Being Left Behind? So what's the context for this discussion? In 2011, the United Nations declared that March 21st would be officially World Down Syndrome Day. Uh, the significance of the date, as you might guess, 321, March 21st, is that uh, persons with Down syndrome have an extra copy uh, of the uh, 21st chromosome. So they have three copies total. So it's an easy date to remember if you want to put it in your calendar. It's called trisomy 21. <laughs> trisomy 21. Yeah. Uh, now, the Down syndrome community was celebrating this day unofficially probably since about 2006. But this official declaration was important because obviously it raised the level of awareness Uh, about persons with Down syndrome. And it also stated that the international community has a stake, right, in promoting the dignity of those with uh, disabilities such as Down syndrome. Um, And in fact, in 2017, so actually this was just last fall, I think in October, uh, the United Nations Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities stated that laws which explicitly allow for abortion on grounds of impairment violate the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So this was entirely consistent with the spirit of declaring World Down Syndrome Day. And it was, of course, celebrated, the statement by advocacy groups. It had been lobbied for by disability disability rights groups for quite some time. Problematic, however, is the fact that this statement was actually in response to a statement by another United Nations group, the Commission on Human Rights, which stated that abortion should be allowed in the case of disability. Mm -hmm. And a member of the Human Rights Commission um, in November, actually, I think it was on November 29th, was caught on tape. Uh, this this member was a Mr. Ben Akwur. I think he's a member from Tunisia. And in, in, in French, he said, so this is a translation, he said, if you tell a woman your child has down, and actually he paused here at this point in the videotape. He, he didn't even really know what it was called. He said, if your child has, has down, what, what is it called? Down syndrome, Down syndrome. If you tell her that, or he may have a handicap forever for the rest of his life, you should make this woman. So he started out saying, you should make this right. woman. And then he quickly amended it. He said, oh, it should be possible for her to resort to abortion to avoid the handicap as a preventative measure. Mm-hmm. So this event, which the Holy See is co-sponsoring at the United Nations, is meant to 
raise awareness um, and, and respond really to this attitude, which is not just present in the UN still, right, um, but also is uh, – present in practices and national policies worldwide. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we see incredibly high rates of abortion in countries like in Denmark, uh, Iceland, and France, and Italy. Um, certainly, uh, the United States is not off the hook. As I mentioned, we have abortion rates uh, somewhere between 70 and 90 percent. Um, and so <clears throat> we, we just want to make it clear that despite any gains made um, on behalf of those with Down syndrome, that we really can't speak of any sort of meaningful inclusion of those with Down syndrome and other disabilities unless we include them most fundamentally, right, in the community of human persons yeah. by allowing them life. Um, so this is, this is the purpose of this event. Well, what will your message be at this panel discussion? Sure. As you mentioned, I'll be part of a panel. And I'm going to be uh, sort of highlighting the scope of the problem internationally. So first I'll give um, data, you know, um, statistical data, for example, on the sort of scope of international abortion of children with Down syndrome. We'll talk about public policies in various countries that have allowed this. And then I'll speak uh, of what the effects of this have been. Um, obviously, the main and most detrimental effect is the killing of children with Down syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. the, the loss, the enormous loss of life of children who have an incredible potential to contribute to our society. So obviously, that's the main effect. When we hear about countries like Iceland that claims an almost 100 percent mm -hmm. elimination, as they say, right. of Down syndrome in their country because of abortion, um, what message does this convey to children and adults who are born with Down syndrome? What does it say about the society that celebrates this eradication of Down syndrome? Sure, Ken. So to the individuals with Down syndrome, it says that we would be better off without you among us, right? It says that your life is so different, right, that you merit sort of a search and destroy uh, program or search and destroy mission, uh, even before you were born, um, to rid to rid society of your life so, so that you don't even sort of show your face in society, right? Um, so this is what it says uh, to the person with Down syndrome or another disability. What this practice says about society, I think, is that truly, you know, we have gone mad, right? Jerome Lejeune said, as you, as you know, Jerome Lejeune was the uh, scientist, the geneticist and physician who discovered the chromosomal basis of Down syndrome. He once said that medicine becomes mad science when it attacks the patient rather than fighting the disease. Mm. It is... A reasonable and perhaps laudable goal to talk about the eradication of Down syndrome, right? This is what Jerome Lejeune's work was about, his causes up for sainthood. Mm -hmm. um, not everyone would agree with this goal. There are many who enjoy the company of their loved ones, their family members with Down syndrome so much that they can't imagine a world um, without Down syndrome. Um, I actually don't have an argument with those who would propose to eradicate Down syndrome. I love my son fiercely. I can't imagine him without his extra chromosome. But I also acknowledge that uh, this extra genetic material um, makes it difficult for him to navigate the world. He has a number of health problems, a number of cognitive problems um, that make it harder for him, right, to mm -hmm. do things that most people would take for granted. So, again, I don't have an argument with attempting to eradicate Down syndrome. The disease. The disease. 
disease. Exactly. But to not understand the difference between eradicating a disease and eliminating a person is pure madness, right? One is a wonderful work of mercy, right? Mm -hmm. To reach out to those who may be suffering in some way and say, how can we help you? Um, The other is an act of pure, unspeakable evil, right? To attack an innocent life. There are no words really to describe um, the utter evil of of eliminating persons with Down syndrome. What sort of support, you know, the Michiana Down Syndrome Support Group, how, how do you support one another? Right. Oh, that's a good question, Ken. So we have a wonderful local support group, and I don't think we're alone. From what I hear nationally, um, every community um, has a very strong uh, Down Syndrome Support Group. Uh, we do a number of things. So, for example, I provide uh, prenatal support um, when other parents find out they have a diagnosis of Down syndrome. Um, I help accompany them as much as they um, as much as they wish um, in terms of helping them understand this, what this diagnosis means. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have oh goodness we we uh, sponsor a number of activities. There are support groups for every age group. So we have a birth to three group. We have a, a four to eight group. We have an eight to twelve group. We have a teen and adult group. Uh, so we. Um, sponsor activities for those with Down syndrome and their families. We have a number of activities. Um, we have a talent show, for example. Um, we have an ambassador program that I'm involved in. I help to train adults with Down syndrome in public speaking and help uh, them to raise awareness about the issues of Down syndrome. Uh, we do a lot of volunteering with our adults with Down syndrome. For example, they volunteer as uh, Salvation Army bell ringers every year to show that uh, they're perfectly capable and willing to give back to the community, um, right, that they're not a drain on society, as some people would think, but they are active and, you know, important community members. Um, We have a buddy walk every year, uh, which happens nationally across the country, to raise awareness and raise money for our activities. Uh, So we do a number of things to help each other out, but mostly we we just become friends. We bond, you know, (laughs) over the sort of common thing that we share. You know, um, it's interesting because... uh, Children with Down syndrome, as you know, have a characteristic look, right? Um, mm-hmm. there, so when we meet other um, children with Down syndrome, other adults with Down syndrome, you know, we recognize a little bit of our child um, in the, in that person. And so um, we tend to, I think, form very strong bonds um, with other families who have children with Down syndrome. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that, you know, that common look, recognizing the your child mm-hmm. in the other. That idea of recognizing the other as a person to whom you have a loving relationship already, is that part of what threatens societies like when France has said you cannot show happy people with Down syndrome on television? Is that this concept of they, that person doesn't look like me, therefore it's a threat to me? I don't recognize the humanity in them? Is that there's Certainly. I, I think so, Ken. I, you know, I think that at the root – of the problem of prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome is fear, right? What we don't quite understand, what doesn't look quite like us, um, we, we fear, right? We are afraid of the demands that this person might make on us because we know that the, this sort of um, different look that children with Down syndrome has comes with some other things, some, um, some difficulties, some cognitive issues, some health issues that make them more dependent. Right mm-hmm. on on mm-hmm. society as a whole, perhaps, and I think ultimately we fear that we we don't want such claims um, on our time, on our energy, on you know on our on our persons that these people might make on us, and so I think that their their unique look sort of stands, if you will, um, for the other differences um, that they present to us, and and we're afraid of those. I think. Well, Mary O'Callaghan, public policy fellow of the Center <laughs> for Ethics and Culture, thank you for your time. 
You're welcome, Ken. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our public policy fellow, Mary O'Callaghan. Check the show notes to see the delightful photo of Tommy, Mary, and Pope Francis. You can learn more about the Center for Ethics and Culture by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu. You can subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast, which is released every other Thursday during the academic year, by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. We'd love your feedback. Please contact the show by emailing cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>